So I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually do something I don't usually do at all. I'm gonna actually read. Uh, and I know that kind of sucks in some ways. I'll try to make it as engaging and interactive as possible. But uh, a lot of things I wanted to say, I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure I got them all in the proper order. So if you bear with me, I'm gonna be reading uh, and hopefully also uh, stimulating some questions and some thought processes. So. So the purpose of our panel is to bring together, attempt to understand, and strategize organizing between two seemingly disparate trends, union decline on the one hand and opioid addiction on the other in the US. What we're concerned with is the parallel importance of both processes to the US working class and its development in the current era. Um, so what I'm gonna attempt to do in four steps is the following. One, consider how these two processes may be related through the wider medium of class and specifically working class experience. Two, uh, to ground these, con these considerations in an ongoing uh, community study that I've been working on for the past four years in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, a small place most people don't know. Three, to expose the limitations of some existing uh, addiction and unionization theories for interpreting these links. And four, to outline a concept derived uh, from the work of, spoiler alert, Louis Althusser, that might better help us uh, uh, to do so, or at least to think through th these linkages between uh, uh, two seemingly uh, um, uh, separate and external processes. So what are those two processes? Um, opioid addiction, unlike those to many other substances or addiction to other substances, is uniquely and grimly trackable due to its high frequency of overdose-induced death. Uh, such deaths reached an all-time high in the most recent data year, 2017, with opioids accounting for 49,000 out of 72,000 deaths, uh, or that's 21.7 per 100,000 people is the death rate uh, that year. Opioid death alone now surpasses HIV-AIDS at its peak, annual deaths by car accident, suicide, gun violence, and chronic kidney disease. Um, on the other side of the coin, can actually move forward now. On the other side of the coin, most of us are also familiar with uh, the relentless decline of U.S. union membership and strike frequency. Uh, it's been falling steadily since the early, since the late 70s. Membership reached one of its lowest absolute and relative levels in 2018, last year, likely deepened by the Supreme Court's Janus decision. Um, we did see an uptick, um, and Eric Blanc, who's here presenting, uh, has done a lot to sort of publicize and talk about this and, uh, um, and analyze it. An uptick in major strike frequency last year uh, and in workers' days out, uh, largely due to the teacher strikes, um, but this is still in the context of decades-long uh, decline and quiescence of strike activity. So what we could do, is what I've done here, is simply just overlay these two trends, right? Overdose death and union decline uh, at the national or state level, national, state, right? Um, and we can notice a correlation. Uh, but as any intro textbook or TED talk will tell you, correlation is not causation. Uh, and there are any number uh, of additional factors that may underlie or uh, explain or uh, um, uh, really be under, you know, ex providing the basis for these two concurrent uh, inverse processes. So what I would argue, instead of making an argument about one-to-one -one causation, that's not what I'm trying to do here, one, one could do that, um, or investigate it further with the proper data. Um, what I'm trying to do is argue that the bigger task before Marxists, leftists, uh, 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 people who are on board with the task of uh, socialist tran transformation, uh, is not necessarily the sussing out of one-to-one -one causation, but grasping the broader web of relationships that support both these processes. Um, we know that the immediate supply side causes of the current epidemic are massive overprescription of opioids like Oxycontin starting in the 90s, paralleled by new supply networks of black market heroin, demand for which grew after the tightening of prescription rules. This has now been followed by the more deadly third wave uh, uh, of synthetics like fentanyl, uh, which are easier to smuggle because they're so concentrated, but um, also much more likely to kill because they're so concentrated. Um, we also know who is most effective. We have a general outline of the profile. Right? Overdose death rates are not the same across all groups. Right? They're worst among whites, second worst among African Americans, least severe among Hispanics so far. Uh, they hit younger whites and older blacks hardest, so there's an age dimension. 
um, gender, men succumb at higher rates uh, than women. I have some you know, basic graphs, uh, um, figures looking at that. Um, the, uh, those without bachelor's degrees are more likely uh, to die from overdose as well as those in painful or stressful occupations. Um, those from the poorest zip codes are also more likely to be hospitalized. Um, and these indicators altogether, while well, they don't, the definition of class is something that I think we could spend a long time talking about, um, and they're not using class, working class, or otherwise as, as, a, uh, as a category here, they do seem to point in the direction that the working class broadly conceived as those who don't own means of production and don't have power over others in the workplace um, is harder hit, worse hit, uh, disproportionately represented um, in the death statistics. Uh, to be clear, opioid, I'm not trying to make an argument that opioid overdose uh, or dependence are, equal, are uh, uh, purely a working class phenomenon. They are equal opportunity afflictions. There's no hard social demographic uh, boundaries to their reach. But like most social problems, they disproportionately hit um, uh, working class and poor people. Um, okay, so we can see some, uh, as I put out before, just general national level uh, uh, um, superficial correlations. I guess one question that could be posed and that I've been, that's actually motivated most of my uh, engagement with this topic um, is something at, more, at a more fine-grained community level, um, coming out of my uh, uh, case study, Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Um, so since 2015, I've been going there regularly. I grew up near there, so I have some familiarity with the region. Uh, uh, interviewing residents, getting archival data on its history, uh, um, learning as much as I can about the town and its, uh, uh, its culture. Um, a little backdrop, I, I think in some ways it's going to be very relevant to this discussion uh, and sort of grounds these, these sort of national, uh, uh, this national picture uh, in, um, more concretely. In the 30s and 40s, this small city of less than 50,000 people um, was probably the most dynamic in terms of the labor movement of all of southern New England. It had an extremely strong union movement organized around the ITU, the Independent Textile Union, um, which organized 85% of the town's largely French-Canadian workforce. Um, which are based mostly in woolen and worsted textiles that reach beyond this city and beyond its, its uh, core industry to organize workers in surrounding towns and cities throughout southern Massachusetts and Rhode Island, even in Connecticut, um, in textiles as well as non-textile firms. It played a determining role in city elections. It launched a robust social democratic movement that included uh, worker education, um, uh, uh, worker education, rallies, parades, publication, uh, 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 weekly publications, leisure clubs, the like, sort of the whole apparatus of what we might have seen more in a European context of sort of social democracy writ large um, was at least attempted and, and to a certain extent successful for a period of time in this particular town. Um, and they attempted to really wrest cultural control of daily life away from the dominant institutions um, that had run the, run the show before that, which is mainly the employers and the Catholic Church, being that it was a predominantly French-Canadian uh, uh, enclave. All of this, however, was abruptly cut off in the 50s, uh, much like Flint, Detroit, or Cleveland in the 80s, or cotton-based textile towns like Lowell, Lawrence, or Fall River in the 20s. Woonsocket's woolen textile factories rapidly closed up uh, in the 50s and decamped, mostly for uh, union-free southern climes. Uh, the town hung on its economy with a sort of mix of electrical and garment manufacturing, as well as logistics and retail and sort of ancillary growing human services until the 70s or 80s, but the floor was continually falling away and eroding and has really just sort of dropped off a cliff since then. When we, when we look at Woonsocket today, just its general uh, profile, it has all the indicators of severe social stress. Uh, median household income is $20,000 below the national average. A third of residents are either poor or near poor, meaning less than 125% of the poverty line. 20% uh, of residents receive state transfers. 28% are on food stamps. More than double the states, and it has more than double the states and significantly above the national violent crime rates, particularly uh, uh, sexual violence and intimate partner violence uh, are extremely pronounced there. And a very large homeless population uh, with multiple shelters, tent encampments, and very well attended uh, food banks. 
On top of all this, uh, Woonsocket has the highest rate of opioid uh, overdose in its state, Rhode Island. It has a, a, a rate of almost 53 per 100,000, which is two and a half times the national rate. Um, I've spoken with 73 residents so far in the eight or nine times that I've uh, uh, been able to visit and, and uh, uh, conduct interviews. Um, practically every single one, not a single one, uh, uh, I should say, denied the significance and prevalence of heavy endemic use of substances, opioids, crack, synthetic marijuana, alcohol in their community. Uh, one respondent in his late 20s said, everybody is doing it, everybody, it's the culture. Another, Woonsocket is a lot more drug infested than Cranston, a town south of there that he grew up in. Everybody I see is doing heroin or that fake weed, the monkey. Um, and another explaining her previous turn towards dealing when she was a teenager said, I took the easy way out. It's what everybody does here, sell drugs. Sold drugs, had kids, finally got a job, was pretty much juggling daycare, the job, and government, government here or the welfare office there. Um, and these last two photos are actually from stills from a film which is now widely used in recovery circles called Lost in Woonsocket, about two, not opioid addicts, but two homeless uh, uh, alcoholics who were living in a, uh, in a tent encampment uh, in the town, and one of, both of whom attempted recovery, one of whom... Uh, seem to have at least success for several years, the other one not so much. Um, so it's almost, it's become in many ways actually a sort of poster child for the problems of uh, 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 deindustrialization and attendant uh, substance abuse in, in use. Um, so, okay, the general correlation that, we, that I sort of outlined at the national level and sort of expanded upon with this view into, into Woonsocket um, seems to show that there's some, something more than just a passing connection between the two trends. Um, and the next question that sort of poses itself, obviously, is how to explain or interpret these connections. Right? What, sort of, what kind of theory or theories might give us guideline, uh, guidelines to do so? And I'm going to perhaps go out a bit on a limb here, because I'm by no means, I'm not a drugs researcher. I'm, not, not, uh, I'm still learning about the subject myself uh, in comparison to my two uh, co-panelists um, who perhaps uh, uh, correct any deficiencies in my analysis here. I'm a bit more thoroughly familiar with the unionization side of things, but if we turn to the two sort of major sociological approaches, and I say sociological because I'm assuming we already accept that these two processes, uh, overdose death and deunionization, um, are more than just purely macroeconomic or psychopharmacological trends, that we think that they're embedded uh, or are more uh, socially enmeshed uh, uh, than those uh, perspectives would, would hold. So we, the, the, the natural turn would be towards sociological theories of, of each. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about each of these, but suffice it to say that you know, on the, on the sociology of addiction side, there's no, you know, a, a major contribution has been within the framework of functionalism and deviance. Um, there are noted uh, deficiencies with that approach, um, both theoretically and also empirically. Uh, there has been a large turn towards what Weinberg calls the, uh, the there's been the appreciative turn, which is largely uh, in the framework of symbolic interactionism or, or related uh, fields of analysis that try to sort of see drug users and drug cultures on their own terms, uh, rather than judging them through the lens of deviance. Right? Um, and uh, there have been some attempts at a Marxist or sort of conflict theoretical approach to this. Early on, the Birmingham School of Cultural Studies looked at a lot of uh, uh, mainly youth uh, uh, um, uh, subcultures that used various substances um, through the lens of rebellion. Um, and uh, uh, Sam Friedman here has done uh, some interesting work on coining the concept of sociopharmacology and tried to apply the concept of dialectics to the HIV AIDS epidemic and with it uh, addiction epidemics. Um, on the unionization side of the scale, right, we, those which we might at least expect perhaps to give us some guidance, right, not the organizational, not so much the regional, urban, or even the demographic approaches to this question, deunionization, union renewal, um, but rather the structural ones that might 
let us think, okay, at the level of, of societal structure, we might start to get a glimpse as to how processes of uh, declining organizational economic power might, in some sense, be connected to or intertwined with new or, or at least growing practices uh, uh, of deleterious substance use. Um, um, but there's not really much to that is on offer there. Right? The, the, so there's a structural approach that looks mainly at the economy and, and uh, states. Beverly Silver is probably a key example of that. There's some more recent uh, movements in this direction. Uh, Barry Eidlin particularly doesn't quite take us into the realm of daily practice and culture, but does look a lot more at working class identity and consciousness. And then Jefferson Cowie, the historian who looked at the 1970s and started to approach these questions, but still leaving out of the equation any state uh, attention to uh, substance use, misuse, addiction, etc. Um, so there seems to be a bit of a gap uh, in terms of what, uh, uh, what existing theory might uh, guide us with regards to any kind of a connection between these two. So here's my most speculative moment, uh, and I hope folks will, I don't know, uh, stick around uh, to hear me out on this. Uh, I want to propose something, uh, going back to the theories I mentioned at the beginning, uh, that might begin to help us plug the gap uh, uh, in terms of a theory that can, at the same time, encapsulate both trends and offer something of an explanation. Um, so Louis Althusser, right, famous uh, uh, Marxian structuralist from France, uh, uh, died in 1990, famously and tragically uh, killed his own wife in a bout of mental illness in 1980. Um, had a lot to say that at a structural level trying to, to link economic processes to what cultural processes or uh, ideology. Right? And his famous essay, Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses, right, which is actually extracted from a much longer monograph, which is now available in English as of five years ago. That's it right there. Um, there, he puts forward a conception of ideology as embedded in and propagated by institutions, religion, schools, family media, even by trade unions or the, what he calls the associative apparatus and political parties. These complexes undertake uh, material social practices that, wait for it, interpolate and form individuals as such while at the same time transmitting ideational content, typically the state ideology that serves to reproduce, in his words, a given social formation and its dominant mode of production. These apparatuses are plural and operate mainly by persuasion rather than coercion, um, which distinguishes them from the repressive state apparatus, the police, army, courts, prisons, etc., that whole complex. Um, Althusser responded to charges of functionalism, which might obviously be lobbed at this conception. Uh, he clarified that ideological apparatuses, in his understanding, are not individual institutions or organizations, right? So not specific parties, not specific unions, not spe specific religious orders or school districts, etc. Rather that each apparatus is something like a, a, a complex, uh, or to use a Bourdieuian term, who uh, was clearly familiar with uh, uh, Althusser's uh, usage, a field, a field of competing parallel institutions. Fields of struggle uh, is, a, is a term that Althusser himself might have uh, more appropriately accepted, uh, whose outcome is indeterminate, but whose general role as state sanctioned or state administered arenas of activity um, is largely there to support and, and reproduce dominant relations of production. Okay, so this model, in his theory generally, leaves, obviously it leaves race and gender out of it. Um, there is entry points where we could try and integrate an understanding of that. Um, uh, his discussion of also leaves out mass media. He doesn't focus on that uh, nearly to the extent of the Frankfurt School. It sort of leaves, uh, he rather sees the church and then later the schools uh, as the dominant institutions of ideological reproduction. Um, and at least to my knowledge, and I've read most of his major works uh, and made a pretty thorough study of them, what he leaves out is any thorough discussion of psychoactive substances, uh, the social practices and institutions that ensconce them and their relations to other practices, institutions, et cetera, and power, power dynamics and capitalism. So what I want to propose is something like the concept of an ideological state apparatus can be applied to networks of psychoactive substance use, distribution, addiction, and recovery. 
We might call this the pharmacological ideological state apparatus, to use a really massive uh, unwieldy term, or the medico-pharmacological ideological apparatus, or some other such combination. Um, this general framework would include both drug scourges that are actually disruptive or perceived to be of capitalist social relations, um, as well as the legal, uh, widely available non-medical complexes, alcohol, uh, nicotine, caffeine, uh, increasingly recreational weed. Other complexes are either directly or indirectly state-administered. Methadone is a maintenance drug um, to get people back into the workforce. Uh, also the panoply of four, or make them ready for the workforce, but also the panoply of for-profit prescription drugs and their massive medical therapeutic pr provision network. Medical mar marijuana is increasingly entering this domain as well. And the current opioid epidemic largely began there in this part of the complex. Proliferation and prescription of oxycodone, hydrocodone, Vicodin, and the, and the like as state-sanctioned, medically administered, hugely profit-yielding uh, uh, attempts to curb, quote, chronic pain, um, whose importance was also inflated by lobbyists and, and salespeople of um, uh, Purdue and other pharm uh, pharmaceutical companies. But this complex has escaped state control and taken on a life of its own. First, increased distribution and sales of traditional heroin, right, et cetera, uh, onto fentanyl today. So a question can be posed here. If a drug scourge escapes and eludes state, state control, does the state or the classes it represents care? Did the early 1970s heroin outbreak, which mostly affected inner city black and brown youth, negatively impact capitalist relations of production or work discipline? Did the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s? Did meth in the 2000s? For that matter, did the scourge of alcohol abuse among native communities in the 1700s and 1800s, which continues today, combined with hyperdeleterious huffing on many Inu and Inuit reservations? I'm posing these as questions because it seems at least fairly possible that they did not pose problems to the capitalism of their day and may have, in fact, supported its objectives or at least um, not conflicted with them. Furthermore, the heavily repressive but also ideological war on drugs, uh, which has done very little to achieve its own stated objectives, uh, is readily conceived as a state-run offensive to redefine and shape the constellation of use practices, legal versus illegal, medical versus recreational, responsible versus reckless and dangerous, etc., um, as well as the thinly veiled uh, uh, campaign um, of renewed racial oppression that it uh, uh, initiated or served. Um, for those caught up as users in these complexes, uh, addiction itself is typically experienced and often experienced as a new form of domination. The addict is dependent on the substance yeah, uh, 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 and the social relationships that enable its acquisition and use, though these also, uh, through habituation, can become self-defining practices, sources of identity. Um, I could flesh out some further parallels uh, to immunization. I'm close to time, so I'm going to try and wrap up here. Uh, I'll close with this parallel and this offering. If, as Marxists, activists, as materialists, right, uh, we want to try and think the connection between unionization, mostly decline, and opioid addiction, to go beyond the more practical, if externalized, questions of how unions can help, uh, we might do well to refurbish and deploy this, uh, this concept of ideological state apparatus. Rather than seeing widespread and deadly opioid use as a simple social problem alien to the inner workings of capitalist exploitation, we may uh, enhance our understanding and our intervention uh, in the development of working class consciousness by seeing the two as spheres of materially grounded ideological battle. Uh, the primary purpose of each, at least as legally sanctioned and tolerated by the state, is to reproduce property relations and the subordination of labor to capital. But each also presents pathways for ideological and practical insurgency against those relationships, or at least in the case of substances, for temporarily evading and undermining them. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that for now and look forward to your comments for the rest of my panelists. Uh, thank you. I just am going to present some thoughts based on my work, which I do research on, uh, you know, on opioid use with people, various 
groups of people who use opioids, uh, young people in particular lately. Um, so Peter already talked about the three phases of the opioid crisis, so we can just skip right on over that. Um, and my examples today will be drawn from a recent study that I've done with um, an observational study with um, young opioid users who are 18 to 29, New York City residents. And I think in many regards, patterns that we see in places like Woonsocket or where I'm from, the Merrimack Valley in Massachusetts, Lawrence, Lowell, that area, um, which perhaps is like the paradigmatic case of opioid um, problems, if you will. Um, and I think in a failed industrial town like Haverhill, where I grew up, it makes perfect sense that people would use opioids. In fact, in many ways, instead of asking why people use opioids, perhaps we could ask why don't? Why doesn't everyone use opioids? Um, they make people feel good. And so what are compelling reasons that people might have to not use opioids? Um, it, I think is, is a fair question to ask. So in this particular study, um, again, kids were 18 to 29. They had to be... Uh, have used opioids uh, three or more times in the past month. Opioids could be any form of opioids. The study was conducted, the data were collected in 2014 to 16 when illicitly manufactured fentanyl hadn't hit New York City super strong. So that wasn't a tremendous factor. It was just starting to bubble up in New York City itself, rather delayed, uh, relative to the rest of the country. So. Primarily, we're looking at heroin use and some what we call non-medical um, prescription opioid use, use of pharmaceutical painkillers, which uh, non-medical just means it, perhaps the medication was prescri certainly prescribed by some doctor to someone, um, but your own use is driven by, you know, it could be any reasons, but is other than as prescribed. Uh, so largely what we might call recreational use, or for many people really, to maintain their opioid dependence. So daily use. Um, just to give a little flavor of what the overall population looks like, it, it fit very much the, uh, in some ways the patterns that Peter mentioned, sort of 60-40, uh, predominantly male, um, definitely white, but a fair representation of uh, Latinos and also uh, people of other races, including multiracial people. Uh, th about 30% Latino. Um, what is really particularly interesting is looking at um, people's socioeconomic background while they were growing up. Um, because significant involvement in any kind of substance use, uh, if you're talking about daily use, is a huge expenditure, it has a class lowering effect. So that's why uh, this is based on what people represented their household income while they were growing up. And I'm focusing on this because I think what's interesting is there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity uh, in our sample vis-a-vis uh, -vis people's backgrounds. So clearly uh, those who um, grew up in households uh, making under $50,000 were the majority, but not not that much. The median group there, um, which is a collapsing of some more fine-grained categories of uh, 51 to 100,000 household-wise, um, a third of the uh, participants represented that as their household income, and then almost 20% from more affluent backgrounds. So in many regards, um, people from a diversity of class backgrounds in New York City um, are engaged in opioid use, um, which 
is definitely an interesting and enduring phenomenon. Other studies I've done uh, in New York City with young people, other groups of young people, definitely reflect the same patterns, uh, including research that I'm doing right now. So it's not a time-limited thing, you know, in terms of uh, micro-time. Um, but we see a broad base of people, including uh, immigrants, people who were born, I've done some research with uh, young adults who were born in the former Soviet Union, and there's a significant um, opioid problem in that community in New York City as well. Uh, but we really see overlapping multiple, multiple communities um, involved in opioid use in this group. That's just a little bit of people's trajectories. Um, the only reason I put that up is because it gives some uh, prevalence figures for heroin use, for example, and, and things like that. So we can see that this is predominantly, although certainly not exclusively heroin using group. Um, and they got involved in opioids typically in their mid-teenage years, and then were pretty much in their 20s uh, by the time we interviewed them. Um, and overdose, uh, clearly uh, with living respondents, we're talking about non-fatal overdose, uh, about half of the sample had ever overdosed, and of those who had, um, there was a wide range, but many people had multiple overdoses, um, and some just one. But at least half with a serious overdose where they needed to be revived is, is pretty high. Uh, and we know that that's the biggest risk factor for having a fatal overdose, so that's highly concerning. Um, among those who had injected drugs, which was about 65-ish, uh, nearing to 70% of the sample, 30% um, of them were HCA positive, and we know that that's increasing. So lots of concerning health indicators, uh, for sure, as we would expect, but considerable socioeconomic diversity, um, which definitely suggests to me that the reasons people would want to use opioids are very common, uh, indeed perhaps universal, <laughs> we might say, and definitely we see that uh, socioeconomic disadvantage plays a role in exacerbating the consequences of over over overdose, uh, overdose opioid use for, for definite. Um, homelessness is a big driver of risk in our sample, and we have a significant prevalence of homelessness going back to um, our demos, we see that 25% were currently homeless and almost 60% ever homeless. And given their age, that's quite high. Um, and that definitely was highly correlated with uh, all sorts of risk factors, likelihood to inject, to be hep C positive, to overdose, have multiple overdoses. Um, however, interestingly enough, socioeconomic status growing up was not. I don't have the answer, <laughs> um, but it's something I'm, I'm exploring. Would love to hear people's thoughts on that. Um, we even see that some risk behaviors like co-occurring non-medical benzodiazepine and opioid use, which is certainly uh, exacerbates the risk for overdose, was higher among uh, groups coming from higher SES backgrounds. And you know, makes me wonder, do they have more disposable income to spend more money on drugs? Who knows? Uh, more access to doctors to get scripts? Not sure. Um, and um, what's interesting is uh, it has been observed by some that uh, today, while we're in the midst of a national opioid crisis, um, 
there's definitely in the popular media been uh, increasing prominence of this medicalized public health approach, even harm reduction inflected approach certainly to um, treating drugs. That widely acknowledged now that um, you know <clears throat> the <clears throat> war on drugs is a failure. However, what's interesting, and unfortunately I didn't um, put this uh, prevalence rate, but it's quite high. Um, criminal justice involvement, the majority of participants um, have ever been arrested and multiple arrests, pretty much all of them are drug-related arrests, cuts across class groups. So um, it's interesting because we don't find that correlated with race or with class, and that may just be a factor of the, in a way, unifying effect of involvement in severe opioid addiction. Um, and definitely, despite the popular discourse, criminalization still really reigns supreme as the go-to strategy, uh, at least among people who are you know, daily users likely to be in situations uh, where they're vulnerable to arrest quite frequently. Um, another interesting uh, takeaway is uh, their treatment experience, where 70% of the sample, m much like their criminal justice experience, have had any experience in substance abuse treatment. Um, very high uh, average numbers of episodes of treatment, where it's about six. Uh, given their age, that's very high. But what we see is um, not that um, there is a diversity of kinds of treatments that people have experienced, but mm, a significant proportion of treatment modalities that we know are not so effective, particularly short stays, three to five days, and inpatient detox, which really isn't good for much of anything except to give you a three to five day break and lower your tolerance so maybe your heroin hits you better. Um, but it's certainly not functional treatment, but that reigns supreme um, still and abstinence-based modalities still. And uh, nationwide, only 10% of people with opioid use disorder who could benefit from treatment are getting it. And that's not even what we consider now today to be the gold standard of medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine, but just any treatment. Um, and even in New York City, where compared to many places in the country, um, there's ample treatment availability. Um, we still see a reliance in many cases on ineffective forms of treatment. So that treatment industrial complex or ideological state apparatus is pretty entrenched. Um, and we are seeing some changes, but that's chipping away, really, at an entrenched system that is, of course, a money-making system, and uh, many interested parties would be loath to, to give up that capital. Um, and in many areas of the country, of course, just getting basic access to treatment, let alone medication-assisted treatment, is a significant challenge. So clearly, what these data show is that social context, micro-context is critical when we talk about drugs and uh, both causes, but particularly consequences. Um, and there is, opioids are pleasurable, so it's not surprising that we would see a whole range of youth involved in it. Um, in many ways, that's not surprising. And in fact, uh, what we're seeing in New York City is a broadening, whereas um, in New York City, as elsewhere, 
whites predominate among those using opioids and dying from opioid overdose. Um, in New York City, and indeed nationally, we're seeing a diffusion where now, and this wasn't necessarily always the case, the by far hardest hit communities with the highest death rates from overdose are those um, that are high poverty neighborhoods um, and generally communities of color. South Bronx, a uh, few zip codes down there in the southern parts of the Bronx have the highest rates in the city, but then we also have still continuing very high rates in Staten Island, which is more of a paradigmatic white, middle working class community. So diversity, um, and that's something that theoretically needs to be grappled with, and I, I don't I don't have a, a wonderful picture of uh, a theory to explain it, but yet I know that that needs to be grappled with in any unifying theory we present. Um, and moving forward, obviously uh, preaching probably to the converted here, but many of the harm, most of the harms uh, that drug users suffer are due to the legal status of drugs and its criminalization. Certainly the involvement in the criminal justice system is. And um, there are many ways to move forward in terms of making things better in a more sort of progressive, um, incremental way. Uh, certainly, I think uh, we could have a massive overhaul of the federal and state regs for medication-assisted treatment that would make it much more uh, low threshold, more uh, aligned towards the realities of uh, users' lives. Um, we've seen some acceptance, conceptually at least, of the notion of uh, novel harm reduction strategies like safe injection facilities or safe consumption spaces. Um, but very little actual rollout of that, a lot of talk. So another thing that's important from, that I wanted to note was uh, disjuncture between popular discourse and then actual facts on the ground. And they do not always go in tandem. So uh, that's sort of a cautionary note um, that I wanted to make. And societal level strategies that could help, certainly universal access to health care, and uh, Obamacare was a great step forward. We're seeing a retrenchment there, clearly. Um, that would do a lot to ameliorate the harms created by opioid use and its intended criminalization. Um, and indeed, I think our fractured, really broken treatment system and our broken healthcare system as a whole, uh, for many diseases, whether we're talking about chronic pain or addiction, um, within the medical community and public health community, and even to some extent in the popular press, there's a growing acceptance of the notion that we need um, a more whole, whole person approach, uh, mind, body, these are all sort of facets of uh, phenomenon and optimal healthcare would address these things as a whole. And I think uh, in our treatment system, it's very difficult to accomplish that because things are so siloed and fractured. And I think with universal access to healthcare, that may be in fact the only way that we could really in a broad scale roll out the kind of healthcare that we know is optimal. And a larger challenge that I think Sam will be speaking about more is how, given the diversity, for example, we see in the sample of youth, the population of youth that I work with, how in a larger sense, can we help disenfranchised communities, people who are hurt by capitalism, drug criminalization, 
begin to see more common cause with each other. I certainly don't have the answer to that question, but I just wanted to throw that out there as something to think about. And that's all. <laughs> I'm Sam Friedman. I spent the first umpteen years of my career working on social movements and labor struggles and stuff like that, helped to set up Teamsters for Democratic Union, uh, later on unionized the place where Inori and I work. Um, so I've got a lot of that kind of practical experience and then I blundered into being a researcher on the AIDS epidemic where I had to learn chiefly with drug users and so I had to learn a lot about that whole set of topics. So that's underlying what I'll be talking about. Um, and I will see if this works. And I'm dedicating this talk to the memory of Rafi Balian, who's a personal hero and friend of mine and a poverty activist and a uh, Armenian activist and a harm reduction activist and an organizer of drug users who overdosed while attending a harm reduction movement in Vancouver. And one of the women who works at the OR book stand over there, in fact, know, knew him and many of his friends. Um, I'm not going to belabor this. A lot of overdose deaths, it's been going up. Uh, heroin has been increasing of late. Um, but 48,000 in 2017 people died of opioid-related deaths. And that's got all sorts of people in a little bit of an uproar, and it's become a fact in the popular consciousness. Um, and you have to ask, what are the large-scale drivers of the opioid epidemic? And I think it's important to study societal contexts and causes for drugs and other what they call epidemics or crises. Um, a lot of people in the drug field know only drugs and the stuff around that, and that's a real weakness. So I've always been saying to them, you need to learn something about the real world. Um, and if you know about the context, this can also affect what you do to make things better and so forth. And what are the targets of intervention? These are seen as political in the world. And Ori and I live in where we live or die and getting NIH grants, that's a problem. Um, the real world, it's a good thing. Um, so we have to ask about what kinds of situations, traumas, anxieties, make so many young people willing to use opioids. But it's also true a lot of older people start using opioids, so we have to look at that. Um, now, one common explanation, I'm not going to belabor it, pharmaceutical companies. They did it. They are to blame. There's no question. They've, you know, they misled the public. They did ad campaigns to redefine pain. They aggressively marketed their products. But that's a really very limited causal analysis. Back in the old days of syringe exchange battles, I used to go up to opponents and I'd say, here, here's a syringe. Now you're going to become a drug injector. Well, the fact that there's an Oxycontin's on the market doesn't mean I ask for it or my doctor gives it to me. You have to ask what's going on beyond, behind that. And it's more of a less populist explanation than a Marxist one. Um, it doesn't ask whether and if and why and how. 
there's been an increase in psycho, psychic or physical pain in the first place that led lots of people to want pain medication. And I might add, blaming big pharma is a time-limited explanation. A lot of people increasingly are starting off with heroin. You know, that's not OxyContin, it's not a pharma product. Um, and they also, that argument has a problem because now we're seeing a big increase in methamphetamine-related overdose. And some of that's the fentanyl that gets into it. But um, nonetheless, people are dying of methamphetamine. Why are they using so much of it? Um, now, I, I will say one thing about the prescription side argument. It's pretty easy to get really deeply into opioid use from just one prescription. This is a complicated slide and that's what it says. Um, and another argument, in some ways it's Peters, I think, uh, in his, at least in the paper you sent me back a ways, and some of the, you know, ethnographed materials, and uh, what's his name, Andrew, what's his name, anyway, Sullivan Sinclair, something like that, wrote about you know, deaths of despair and stuff like that. And that's a reaction to economic and social despair. And, you know, all the things Peter said, you know, decay of economic possibilities for youth, destruction of economic realities for older people, decay of community, loneliness, and I would add lack of a future, for example, due to all the above reasons and also global warming. Um, and you know, if you're in stress or pain or any of the rest of it, depression, opioids have a lot to be said for them. And you know, one of the other speakers said, why doesn't everyone use it? Um, and if you want to put it into language that certain economists put it in terms of the relative opportunity cost of becoming an opioid dependent person, decline if there's less to lose. So, you, you know, there's lots of arguments you can make. Um, but I want to talk about pain. I think it's a big issue that's only now beginning to be recognized. Pain data suck. But what data exists seems to indicate that it's been going up in the United States. And it's probably been going up since at least the mid-90s, which is more or less when the opioid thing began to happen. Um, now, a little-noticed report out of Massachusetts, and I don't know why we're so focused on New England today. Uh, yeah, my daughter does drug work in Rhode Island. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and it points to certain industry sectors with opioid-related overdose rates being a lot higher than the average rates for all workers. And they are things like construction, agriculture, forestry, fishing, hunting, transportation, warehousing, that is logistics, um, waste management, um, and accommodation and food services. When you look at it from occupation, I, can, I can't really read this either, but it adds in things like hospital workers and people who take care of patients. You know, just think of moving all those bodies to, you know, so they can piss or whatever. So that um, the idea is a lot of these are jobs that are associated 
with bodily and or psychic pain. And it's been going up. So you have to think about, and this is a Marxist analysis I'm about to give you, why pain may have increased. What's the dialectics of pain? Um, and, you know, the period of increasing opioid use has been a period of one-sided class war, which is a term invented in 1977 by the then head of the UAW. Um, there was an employer's offensive that really heated up at the, in the later 70s during the Carter administration, became formalized as neoliberalism under the aid, reign of Thatcher and Reagan. Uh, globalized competition, you all know that stuff. Some arguments that there was a decline in profit rates beginning in the mid-90s, which is when we have data showing that the numbers of young injectors began to go up again after having not been going up and in fact going down. And during this period, unions were weakened both for internal reasons, and I wrote a book about that, which was published in 1982, and external reasons, which was the employer's offensive. So they became incapable of fighting, and they were smashed in many cases, or weakened. Not that they all are by any means, and they're building it back. And that's what one of the many things that, of course, we're all about, changing it. Now, Kim Moody is one of the best analysts of class conflict in the United States and around the world I know of. Um, and if you look at a relatively recent book of his on new terrain, uh, what's he talk about? He talks about speed up. It's obvious how that increases pain, both because of the sheer physical muscle ache of doing it, plus the injuries you get into. Reduced ability to protect each other and yourself when you're at work, because you don't have a strong union back or a workplace group of co-strugglers. A lot of the unemployed, unquote, work off the books and they work multiple jobs, often in, under really cruddy conditions, as we all know, informal labor and stuff like that. Um, so that they have even less protection against injury and pain. The increase in the logistics industry, which Kim talks about, hospitals and some, you know, some non-obvious sources of pain. If you drive around Pittsburgh, right, the steel capital of the world, what do you see other than malls that used to be steel mills is, oh, I'm blocking the name of it, but the Pittsburgh, the, the University Medical Center, whatever it is, I'm blocking on the name. My daughter even did a residency there, but I block. Uh, so there's a lot of occupationally induced sources of pain, many sources of psychic and physical pain for those who can't find work or keep it. Um, for people who are homemakers without income coming in, whether male or female, though mostly female. And for all the kids growing up in those situations, there's lots of pain, physical and psychic. And as I said, pain often leads to drug use. Uh, and we have some evidence of that. The treatment system sucks which is the point I think Anoria just made. There's very little of it. A lot of it is ineffective. Um, I will say one thing about the current crisis. The federal government is beginning finally, after I don't know how many generations, 
to throwing some serious money into expanding the medically assisted treatment stuff. So that will go up. Um, but then you have to ask, what are the solutions, given everything I've been saying? Can we treat our way out of the opioid epidemic? The money is good. It may help. I still doubt it. Um, it's, there's a vast amount of need. What was your figure of the number of people in the community who were doing it in, in Woonsocket? They're saying oh, everybody, definitely. just about. Yes, yeah. That's <laughs> so that, you know, they, they don't, don't have those kinds of resources and they're not going to spend them. Anytime you try to set up at least methadone programs you're, or harm reduction programs, you're very susceptible to not-in-my-backyard arguments, which actually crippled the efforts of the New York city government and state government to increase stuff in the city for decades in the, during, during the HIV crisis. Um, few doctors are really very interested in learning how to treat this stuff. Um, Reimbursement rates are low, and their doctors and their staff fear being stigmatized as the people who treat the drug users. And some of them are scared of drug users because they're assholes, <laughs> have to use a scientific term. Uh, and they stigmatize people who use drugs. And there's almost no research around to offer clues about how we could increase the amount of treatment available. I mean, we've tried to do some in our 96 Metro study. Now, can economic growth get us out of these difficulties? That's what everyone always says. We need more growth because it will trickle down. Uh, obvious question, growth for whom? We've been seeing growth in some sense, though not much of it by historical standards. And it all goes to the rich people, uh, the top 5%, 10%, whatever it is. Um, and you can see that periods of what they call growth, like the later Clinton administration and the later Bush administration, had a lot of opioid growth. The period of growth, as they call it, in this decade have seen the things, the not things going from this to that. Uh, so growth isn't going to do it. Uh, I will say that the growth, even the boom times now, is a lot less than it used to be when I was a kid. Um, and what workers, whether blue collar, white collar, pink collar, even earning more than 100 grand a year, um, see is little increase in income, but lots of increase in stress and often danger at work. Um, so, how can drug users help? I want to put that in because no one ever thinks of mentioning it. The drug users know they're at risk. They do organize in small groups and sometimes politically. You should have seen the way they were roasting the health minister of, I forget whether it was Quebec or Canada, at the time of the harm reduction meetings in Montreal uh, a couple years ago um, because of all their friends were dying, uh, including Rafi. Um, we learned from the AIDS epidemic that some of the people most affected by diseases are the best thinkers about it. I mean, it's that simple. We learned that in relationship to gays in the AIDS epidemic, the drug users in the AIDS epidemic, the African people, the poors, the AIDS epidemic, you name it. And 
A lot of the harm reduction concepts were actually developed by drug users. They may or may not have been out as drug users. Uh, and a lot of the syringe exchanges that were organized were done by drug users, even if that wasn't public. Um, so we need to figure out how we can help encourage and assist opioid users in becoming serious Marxist organic intellectuals as we struggle against this thing. Um, or at least how we can help them overcome obstacles to doing this, because they're trying. Um, and stigmatization is, of course, a problem. Now, I, I want to plead for some humility. I mean, you know, us Marxists tend to be arrogant as hell sometimes. Sociologists do, drug researchers, public health researchers. We know a lot less than we need to know, but we need to do action even in our ignorance at this stage. Um, so there are some questions like the death and the misery that's going on with these epi current epidemics needed to be self-limiting via community learning the way the crack epidemic in many ways was. We know that naloxone saves lives. That, by the way, was an innovation by the Chicago Recovery Alliance, a group of uh, um, harm reductionists, many of whom were drug users. Um, which then spread through harm reduction service circles and is now standard public health practice. Punishment is about the worst thing you can ever do because it drives people under, underground and kills people. Drug policy may matter. Portugal decriminalized you know, the turn of the millennium and it's got six fatal overdoses per million in 2014, the U.S. had 185 in 2016, and that went up probably into the 200s in 2017, and stuff like that. We have to enlist the thoughts and energies of people who use drugs. Um, before I go to what I think is my last two slides, I just want to mention there's a, in addition to the kinds of Althusserian stuff that Peter was talking about, I would point not just to the dialectics of pain, but the dialectics of dignity attacks, and I've written a couple papers on that, and of alienation. These also are part of why people use drugs, um, and the politics of scope gating and ideological state apparatuses and stuff like that is also part of the picture. Um, now, the politics of the response is an interesting thing. Of course, the scapegoating is much less this time than it was around crack. Why is that? Because at least the way the media are treating it, it's a white folks thing. Maybe, you know, all those rednecks and all the rest of it to use all this kind of pejorative language people use for its poor white workers, but, and also not so poor white workers. Um, it's not is tied into the racism as last time. Everyone has talked about that, and that opens up possibilities to get unions and other workers' groups more involved than when we are dealing with crack, because it doesn't push the racism button to begin with. So you can get a more unified response. Uh, so we should think about how do we get unions involved in the naloxone responses and community support for the members and family members who are using, uh, make them aware, if they're not already aware, of the tie-in with pain. Um, maybe get harm reduction speakers and activists to take part in Workers' Memorial Day events, which are coming up at the end of this month and then next year at the end of April. 
Um, I don't know how to frame opioid users, I, opioid issues in terms of contract proposals for negotiation or even for what stewards should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But if we engage with unions on this issue, we'll find out pretty quickly because they're very good at that. Um, and we need to educate harm reduction workers and drug treatment and drug user activists to frontline workers about the dialectics of pain and drugs. So yeah, I, I decide to end with a couple of what I think of as key questions for discussion, which is one reason I said maybe I should be the end talker. And they are, how can we make cross-movement cooperation of worker movements and drug-related movements happen? How to work in similar ways with the black movement and women's rights groups? And I would add, why are the, what does it tell us about our own movement that there's only four of you in the audience? <laughs> you know, there's a certain disconnect, I think, which is evidenced by this between Marxist theorists and their realities of working class lives. I don't think any, that's not controversial, but it's worth noting. <laughs> and that's the end of my talk. <laughs>